Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, a look back at 2022. Twenty twenty two is ending with some similar headlines as it saw at the start of the year. Republican doubts about election integrity, rising COVID cases, and concerns about an impending surge of migrants and asylum seekers at the southern border. But in between the top headlines have come some other major stories, so we're taking a week to look back on stories and interviews that we aired this year. We start with one of the biggest issues confronting the Southwest water. The legislature this year approved a plan to spend over a billion dollars to shore up the state's water supply. We spoke with Dr. Sharon Megdahl, the director of the University of Arizona's Water Resource Research Center, about how that money could be spent. I'm very excited that the state has made a financial commitment to water. Over the years, they haven't really committed large dollars or many dollars at all to working on water projects, water conservation. We know back in 2019, there were some special funds that went to conservation grants and the like. But unlike you know, some other states, maybe our neighbor to the West California, which you know, they have bond issues and they have other things for water projects, we, d- we don't have that here other than at the individual community level. So this is a real departure in the 30 years or more that I've been involved in water in Arizona, just haven't seen this kind of investment by the state. And so I think it's noteworthy. And although there may be many questions and questions about the governance and the organization, it seems like there's a real attempt to compromise because of the recognition of the need to invest in water for the future of Arizona. You have experience on state boards, both water-related and not. How should the board for this new fund go about its work? In the 1990s, from 91 to 97, I had the honor of serving on the state transportation board. I represented Pima County. And the state transportation board has oversight or the role to play in investing in the federal highway system in Arizona and the state highway system. In developing the state plan and the plan for investment, it was kind of a bottom-up plan where you got the transportation plans from the local councils of government and you kind of built up and built it up into a statewide plan and that would determine investment. I recognize water is different for lots and lots of reasons, but I still think we need to have a better understanding of the whole because we have this unprecedented opportunity to invest on behalf of the state. And we want all parts of the state to be part of that. And I think the legislature made that very clear. But again, I think there are details to be figured out. One of the the questions I have heard about this money is it seems like a very small percentage of it is for conservation projects. Most of it is for finding new sources of water. Is that the right way to go about it, or do we need to spend more time, money, and effort on conservation right now? I'm very glad to see that there was the money added specifically for conservation. It doesn't make sense to invest a lot of money in other things until you are confident you're doing a good job managing the resources you have. With conservation, you know, now we're talking, or I've heard talk about 
you know, having grant programs that incentivize conservation. And I think that's great. And I think we need more of that. I'm trained as an economist. So fundamentally, I'm going to say people respond to economic incentives. And when it comes to water, even though we know water is precious, for many people, it's still not a dominant portion of their bills. I mean, I pay far less for water than I do for my cell phones from the family than I do for our cable TV. And so, you know, what will motivate people? What will try to get them active or, or expand programs already in place? We've talked a lot about big projects and agriculture. What are the areas where we can make smaller changes, but make them thousands of times, like, say, with residential water use? We can't put a wall around our communities, but we can take a look at how we grow, how we design, particularly because we are still growing. And so I think we need to think about what our houses look like, what our communities look like. You know, I'm just kind of preforming these ideas here, but maybe some of this conservation could go to home builders, maybe a competition about how can you incorporate more water conservation. So I think we have to think about how we design the built environment and not separate that out from these other discussions. It's really got to be all in. Every one of us is part of this. And I hope people will engage with this process of determining how to invest this money. That was Sharon Megdahl, the director of the Water Resource Research Center at the University of Arizona. Water quantity is not the only issue. There are also problems with water quality. Per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, better known as PFAS or forever chemicals, are used in a variety of modern products, but they're also leaching into our water supply, including near Tucson's Davis Mountain Air Force Base. In September, we traveled to a PFAS treatment site with Tucson Water Director John Kamik. He started by explaining the site. This was a, a collaborative between the city of Tucson and the state of Arizona through the Department of Environmental Quality. Uh, this is just north of davis Monthan Airfield, and this was an old production well that was used by the city of Tucson many, many years ago. Uh, and we provided it to the state of Arizona to do some testing on some PFAS treatment mechanisms and to start to affect the plume that's coming off the base. So walk me through. Over here on our left are a bunch of pipes labeled raw water, um, and then we're standing thankfully in the shadow uh, because it's a hot sunny day of some big tanks here. So walk me through what we're looking at. So what we have at this site is we have a well. That well then pumps the groundwater that has PFAS compounds in it. It then uh, goes through some filtration to remove any sand or anything that's from the aquifer, uh, but it is containing PFAS at, at concentrations and then it goes into what are they called these large vessels and these vessels are filled with a media almost like little ball bearings and that media is specifically designed uh, to hold and absorb PFAS compounds and then the water coming out the end is essentially PFAS free. So how much water is being run through here for example on a daily basis how much are you treating? On a daily basis I would say probably about 200 to 300,000 gallons a day so the well is pumping around 200 to 250 gallons per minute and it runs uh, essentially continuously. Whenever we talk about things getting filtered as you mentioned there's a medium in there that is bonding to the PFAS or the PFAS is bonding to it. 
when it gets, for lack of a better term, full, what do you do with that medium? Because now it's full, full of PFAS. Yeah, that's uh, that's what our uh, you know our partners at Arizona Department of Environmental Quality are doing. Is so they monitor the vessels uh, frequently. Uh, so when they know it's fully absorbed for PFAS, uh, then they'll make arrangements to have the media removed from the vessels and delivered to a hazardous waste facility where it's incinerated at high temperature, which destroys the PFAS compounds. Assuming you all and your partners see on the outflow end what you like over time, as you said, this is the beginning of, a, of an experiment, does this well ever come back online or is it just offline forever? No, I don't see this well coming back online. I see this well being part of an environmental uh, remediation program that will eventually be developed uh, for the deal directly with the PFAS issues uh, coming off the base front north at Davis Mountain. When you say things being developed in the future, is this the future that these will be dotting the Tucson landscape or there'll be a larger facility? How does that work? It's, that's a great question. Uh, what we see nationally, and I'll just throw this out here, is that these types of facilities will be dotting hundreds of communities throughout the landscape, not just Tucson. Government question that always has to come up, who's paying for this little project? This little project is, was actually paid for by the state of Arizona. So the city provided the well and the location that met the conditions uh, to do the most effective treatment. But the state of Arizona uh, used money from what's called their WARF Fund program to launch this uh, pilot project and get it done in a very uh, expedited uh, fashion. We've mentioned a couple times we're just north of Davis Monthan. We know the Air Force and the airport have PFAS problems historically because of the firefighting foam they were using. How big a problem is PFAS here in Tucson? Well, it's affected those those parts of the aquifer that you mentioned. So north of davis Mountain, and it looks like it extends about uh, one to two miles uh, into our central uh, Tucson Basin, and then northwest of the Tucson International Airport, more or less where the Arizona Air National Guard is located, and that extends to the areas in that vicinity as well as underneath the Santa Cruz River. So we have a good knowledge of where PFAS is located, so we're able to avoid those areas right now. And what our main focus is um, currently is to start having remediation take place of the groundwater systems that are impacted and working with those potentially principal responsible parties that use the firefighting foam to help uh, start to participate in the cleanup of this. When you say remediation of the groundwater, does that mean someday it could be clean or will there always in those areas where the plumes are will there always be some background level yeah ideally we'll pump until it's clean but that could take many many decades because we're dealing with parts per trillion which is a whole new level of measurement compared to past environmental programs that deal with part per million or part per billion part per trillion is a lot of water you need to pump to treat there's a lot of new technology being developed around a PFAS destruction um, so hopefully uh, technology and the advancement of technology related to PFAS will come along and help us and help other communities throughout the country uh, deal with these issues and get their aquifers back to a uh, natural state. Thanks for uh, wandering out here with us. All right, no problem. Thank you. That was Tucson Water Director John Kameek. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. We're looking back on some of the top news topics of the year this week. How we police and who does the policing have become one of the nation's top issues in recent years. Tucson Police has long had a staffing shortage, but as AZPM Samantha Larned reports, the department is looking to not just fill its openings, 
but ensure the force is more representative of the city it serves. Afterwards, she came up to me and she's like, and it's that relatability I talked about, right? Melissa Ayun is telling a group of women about a fellow officer who was recruited by the Tucson Police Department. She's like, oh my gosh, I'm a single mom and I related to everything that you said. And she's like, I really think I can do this. Ayun is a recruiting officer with TPD and she's speaking at a recent event the department held for women interested in law enforcement. A lot of women don't even consider this career field because they just don't see themselves doing it, myself included. Like I came into this career field for the benefits because I had children that I wanted to provide for. I wanted a retirement, I wanted stability. Those were the things that mattered to me and that's what brought me here. When Ayun first joined the force, she never thought that she would get hired. She'd been working as a waitress when her children's father lost his job. She was looking for a career with greater security. Now, 16 years later, Ayun works to inspire others to consider law enforcement as a possible career path. Among the attendants of the workshop is Lupita Kretzer, a senior at Walden Grove High School in Saharita. She heard about the event from Officer Ayun, who spoke to her class about opportunities and benefits at TPD. I'm interested in possibly becoming a police officer or even going into maybe like crime scene or something. Um, but I did like the idea of women supporting women because it is a male-dominated um, career. And so I was really excited to come. I wasn't sure how many people were going to show up, but I'm, I'm glad I came. As of October, TPD has nearly 850 sworn officers. And according to Assistant Chief Monica Prieto, women make up only 15% of that number. With the 30 by 30 initiative, TPD is hoping to double this number by 2030. An organization has challenged police agencies to increase the number of females within their organizations in all ranks, basically giving women the opportunity to have a seat at the table. Another speaker at the workshop is Sarah Fisher, a crime scene specialist who has been with TPD's crime scene unit for just over a year. Fisher explains that crime scene investigation, in addition to being highly competitive, is a new field, which is still developing. In crime scene in particular, um, it is also a male-dominated. Uh, TPD has, in the past couple of years, had a lot more females. So I think right now we're almost 50-50 male and female, which is cool. Um, when I went through the academy period, uh, it was four females. So all four of us were females, and that was really fun. It is kind of cool to see how it's developing and how we're able to, to change it, change the field. Fisher recommends getting as much experience as possible to stand apart, such as forensic classes, internships, and ride-alongs. Also in attendance at the recruiting event is 36-year-old Cameron Froby. She is a mother of three and an esthetician who has owned her own business for the past seven years. Well, my dad was a police officer, so it's always been kind of been in the back of my mind. I've had kids, did all the things backwards, and all of a sudden kind of came to a point in the last year, I was like, you know what, I think it's time to do something more with my life. Froby is aware of the controversy and negative public perception associated with the job, but sees it as a motivator to do better. To be honest with you, that's kind of why I want to do it. Like, honestly, because I think that there's there's a reason for the job. There's obviously, you know, and I think that there are some bad apples out there, but I, I feel like there's enough people that can prove that wrong. So there's a little even more of a push because of that negative vibe that there is with the police department now. So it kind of drove me even more to be like, I'm going to do it. As for the department itself, 
Ayan sheds some light on its goals and the reason they hold events like this one. You know, it's not just about we need more female officers. I mean, yes, we would love to see, we really want to see a diverse agency in general. Females have a different way of thinking. They have a different way of communicating. Ayan says that everyone has something to offer due to their varying life experiences and the way that they relate to the community. We would like for the Tucson Police Department to mimic our community. And our community is extremely diverse. And whether it's culturally, whether it's your belief system, regardless of what it is, we want a diverse department because we deal with a wide range of issues in this career field. And in dealing with people, everyone has something to contribute. For The Buzz, I'm Samantha Larned. From policing, we turn to a lack of housing across the state. Reasons for that shortage vary from place to place. For some communities in scenic areas, that reason is vacation rentals. In September, we talked with the mayor of Sedona, Sandy Moriarty, about this issue. She started our conversation by relaying an anecdote. We always gone down to the Historical Society Museum to meet the executive director candidate who talked to a realtor and he said, I, they told me, I, what do I want? Uh, uh, and I'm looking, he said, I'm looking for a short-term rental. And that's, that's, that's like a four-letter word in Sedona <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> you know. So he said, but I just meant that I need some place to stay until I find long-term housing. I like to call them vacation rentals because that is more descriptive of what they actually are. They're occupied by visitors to the area. They are not residents, and because they're not residents, they're not neighbors. But they're in a neighborhood for the most part, not all of them, but most of them are actually in neighborhoods. Sedona did have a ban on short-term rentals. I'm not gonna say there were no short-term rentals when we had our ban in place, but let's just say it's maybe 100 at least, maybe more than that. On our last report, for July, as of the end of July, we had 978 properties. And I believe the total housing inventory is about maybe 6,600, something like that. That's a significant percentage. Yeah, it's almost 15 percent. It's uh, Before I became the mayor, I was on the Housing Commission in Sedona, and I know we always had a problem with trying to house workers in Sedona, because when you're town depends on hospitality. Those aren't the highest paying wages around. And so you need places for people to live, for workers to live. We don't expect to be able to house everyone, but it would be nice if we could house more than we do. And I think among the Verde Valley cities and towns, and there are five of them, Sedona is no longer the biggest population-wise because we lost population in the last 10 years. So you all have a new program in place to try and deal with this. Tell us again, in case our listeners down here in southern Arizona aren't familiar with what the change is. Actually, we just talked about it for the first time at the city council meeting last time, and boy, did word get out. We've had a lot of calls about it. It is a program that will move, will convert short-term rentals or vacation rentals into back into long-term rentals. And the goal is to increase the number of long-term rentals available to the workforce by offering cash incentives to the homeowners in exchange for long-term leases to locals. So is this the only thing that you have tried? I'm guessing not. 
you know, I don't know what we can do because the governor and legislator have told us we can't. We can't regulate them in any way. Sedona and the next closest city, Cottonwood, um, I understand, are sharing a housing manager. Is this a regional issue? Absolutely, it's a regional issue. It's just not as bad in the rest of the Verde Valley because land is lower priced. Some people might be surprised that you all decided to use, shall we say, the carrot rather than the stick to convince people to get out of the vacation rental business and into the long-term rental business. Have you heard from homeowners? The mayor and the council receive emails from everybody all the time on everything. When they have a complaint, we hear about it. And we have heard some, but not a great deal. And believe me, when we considered this, because we have a citizen-led housing committee that talked about it for really months ahead of time about this concept, and we talked about that at great length, the main thing I think that you need to remember is it's a pilot program. We want to see how it works. We don't expect it to never change. We just want to put it in play and, and let's see what happens. And I know that sounds kind of crazy in some ways, but we, we can't know exactly how it will work until we put it in place. We can always modify it. This is true of almost any ordinance we have. We can modify it. And it's going to be different in every community. It won't work the same here as it does in Jerome or Page, and everybody has a different situation. So that's why it's very difficult to pass statewide legislation regarding vacation rentals. And so what we've always looked for is local control. That's just what we need. Every city needs to be able to find their own solution of what will work best for them. That was Sandy Moriarty, who is in her final days as mayor of Sedona. To wrap up this show, we turn to the entertainment industry. Southern Arizona has long been a destination for film and TV shows. Alex Cox is a British filmmaker best known for the films Sid and Nancy and Repo Man. He used Tucson for the first time in the 1980s and returned in 2016 to shoot the film Tombstone Rashomon. The reasons to shoot... Uh... Tombstone Rashomon in southern Arizona was because the film was set in Tombstone, you know, so it made sense to shoot in southern Arizona. Um, but more widely than that, the state, not even just the south, but the state itself has so many diverse looks that you can shoot just about any part of the United States or North America and pretend, you know, and, and shoot it in Arizona and pretend that you're in the big city or in the desert or in the mountains or in whatever you want. Well, maybe maybe not a beachfront, but everything else. When it comes to picking a location, sure, a, a film about Tombstone, it, it's good to shoot it in Tombstone. But beyond the obvious, how do you go about picking a place to shoot a film? I, in my experience, it's normally the location that attracts the film you know you i've been somewhere and think oh this would be a great place to make a movie what can i what can the movie be about you know and that happened to me with with tucson and with nick with nicaragua when i shot a film there and in liverpool um a lot of and mexico city i mean a lot of places draw your attention and and want to and, and, and say you should come and make a film here you know and then you have to find an excuse and of course, finance now is becoming, I mean, it's always part of it, but 
competitions between locations with incentives and things like that. How much do those incentives help tip a scale or help make a decision? I think they do in terms of the financial entities, because the financial entities don't normally care very much about the creative aspect of the film. And so you might have a project like Breaking Bad that's written to be shot. I mean, it was written to be shot in some Arizona town, wasn't it? But they had tax incentives in New Mexico. So they went to New Mexico. It's not always even a good idea to do that, you know, because sometimes the incentives, yeah, you have to jump through a lot of hoops to get them. You have to bring a lot more people out from Los Angeles as crew and put them up in hotels and stuff because you can't crew as many people locally. And so there's a lot of costs that producers sometimes incur in order to be eligible for tax incentives. You mentioned that Tucson and Phoenix and even Prescott, you know, there are crew availabilities, actor availabilities. Is that different than a lot of places? The thing about Tucson is Tucson was going to be the center of the American film industry. You know, that famous story about they, you know, they got on the train in uh, some, some guys being sent out west to find a place where Edison wouldn't be able to extend his net of copyrights and restrictions. And they were looking to shoot out west. And, but in Chicago, they got on the wrong train. And instead of taking the train to Tucson, they took the train that went to Los Angeles. And so they, oh, this looks good. There's an ocean here. We can shoot here. But the original intention had been gone to Arizona and build a new American film industry. Given the proximity, though, to California, given the, the ease with which people can move back and forth, there's always been production in Arizona. I mean, not just cowboy movies, but some really, really great films. You're known you know, for so many, but Sid and Nancy and Repo Man. What's your newest project? What are you working on? Oh, I'm working on I'm working on a film now that I'm calling my last movie because I'm nearly 70 years old, you know, and I'm probably, you know, you know how it is a young person's game. But I'm thinking that I can shoot it in Arizona, of course, but I'm not going to tell anybody what it's about, not even the financiers. The first film I made in Arizona was in 1987. I came out with like two crews to film first and second unit simultaneously on a film called Walker. And that was my first experience in Tucson. I think I've shot a couple of videos there. And then, and then the, the last film, the film I finished uh, four years ago, Tombstone Rashomon. That was filmmaker Alex Cox. And that's the buzz for this week. We'll be back in the new year with coverage of the inauguration of a new state government. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Zach Ziegler is our producer with production help from Samantha Larnett. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Happy New Year and thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.